All right. Well, we're going to begin today by reading John's account of the resurrection found in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 1 through 23. If you need a Bible, they are on either side of the sound booth. You may not be able to get to them today, but if you can, you're welcome to them. They'll be our gift to you. I also believe it will be displayed on the screen behind me, and you can follow along there. I'll read, and you can follow along as I do. Here's what it says. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Don't you love this detail? Uh, Essentially, this is John writing here. So what what he's really saying is, I ran faster than Peter. (laughs) So, So in the middle of this declaration of the resurrection of Jesus, he adds this little little note, I outran Peter. (laughs) He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, And she told them that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Wow, that was loud. Sorry about that. The, uh, the simple summary of all that we've just read is this. The tomb is empty. Jesus Christ is risen. And he is alive today. Are you thankful for that? Amen. There has been an increase in recent years of of people, including Christians, including way too many theologians, who have become convinced 
that it does not matter if Christ actually rose from the dead or not. That the myth, as they see it, is valuable absent any actual historical resurrection. They claim that the message, the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus does not depend on any of it being true. They say that we can learn from Christ's example, that we can learn from Christ's sacrifice, that we can learn from Christ facing death with dignity. We can learn from Christ's appeal to God to forgive those who had wronged him. We can learn from Christ's concern for the well-being of his mother as he was facing his own death and his life was slipping away. We can learn from all of this whether or not it actually happened, they say. But the great apostle Paul disagrees with their assessment. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Not to allow us to miss the point, he emphasizes it again a little bit deeper in 1 Corinthians 15 where he writes, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Paul was convinced that our faith, his faith, that Christianity itself rests on the truthfulness of the resurrection. A myth simply will not do. Only if the resurrection is historically true is Christianity true. Only if the resurrection really happened is there any point to preaching. Only if the resurrection is factually true is there any point to our faith. Without the resurrection of Jesus, we have no reason to be here this morning. We would be better off spending our time running around empty fields looking for little plastic eggs filled with chocolate and Mentos. Thankfully for us, the first service laughed louder at that, so minus one for second service. Uh, Just joking. Thankfully for us, the resurrection is true. It really happened. And let me just mention here that if you are a person who has come here today and you are skeptical of the resurrection, and I understand there may be a number of people here today who are skeptical of the resurrection, and and that's okay. I mean, it is, from a natural perspective, a pretty difficult thing uh, to believe. But, but if you are skeptical of the resurrection, I highly commend that little book that we offered you, uh, the, the Case for Easter, The Case for uh, the Resurrection. It is a very easy read, and yet it makes a very compelling case, a very compelling defense of the resurrection. And so I would just encourage you to read it. If you didn't ask for it, we'd be happy to give it to you uh, following the service. From the authority of the, uh, the accounts, the authenticity of these gospel accounts to the fact that Christianity would have never gotten off the ground if the authorities of that day would have simply produced a dead body of Jesus. To the fact that Jesus' own disciples were skeptical of the resurrection until the evidence mounted to such a place that they just could no longer continue to deny what they could clearly see. And on and on it goes. 
The, the reasons to believe the resurrection are compelling. The evidence for the resurrection is actually quite overwhelming. It is the central truth upon which Christianity rests. It is the central truth of all of human history, the central event of all of human history. Jesus Christ did, in fact, rise from the dead, and he is alive today. And his resurrection brings peace. Verses 19 and 20 of this 20th chapter of John tell us of Jesus' first post-resurrection appearance to his disciples. He had already appeared to Mary Magdalene, and now he appears to his disciples where they were together behind locked doors, fearing for their lives. And Jesus appeared in their midst. The first thing he said to them was, peace be with you. Now, as I just mentioned, Jesus had already appeared to Mary, so she had at this point seen the resurrected Lord and believed. We're also told in verse 8 that John, even though up to verse 8 he had only seen the empty tomb and had not seen the resurrected Lord, that in spite of that, uh, John believed, even though the disciples as a whole still did not understand that Jesus must rise from the dead. John, upon seeing the empty tomb, he, he, he believed. But the disciples as a whole had not yet encountered the resurrected Lord. They do not yet believe that Jesus is, written, uh, is risen. In fact, Luke tells us that when the women reported that Jesus had risen from the dead, the disciples thought that the women were speaking nonsense. So you need to know that Jesus is not coming to people who are filled with faith. He isn't coming to people expecting him to show up. He is coming to confused and bewildered people who never quite understood when he told them that he would rise again after three, three days. He's coming to people who are heartbroken that their beloved master has died, who are fearful that the authorities are coming for them next. It is in the midst of all of this upheaval, all of this anxiety, all of this uncertainty that Jesus appears and says to them, peace be with you. Now, this is more than just a customary greeting, that their anxiety was a result of the death of their master. He's no longer dead, and so his presence itself brings them peace. Likewise, when we are separated from God, when we're separated from Jesus, we have no peace but when he reveals himself to us, when, when, when he shows up where we are and we experience him, we see him, we have peace. But there's more to this greeting that Jesus gave them that day than just the recognition that his physical presence would bring them peace and calm their anxiety. This gift of peace that Jesus offers them is the fruit of the salvation that he had just won on the cross for them. The enmity between God and man has been resolved by the God-man Jesus who bore the penalty of our sins in his own body so that we could be reconciled to God so that we could have peace with God. The resurrection brings peace. It brings the peace that comes with the presence of Christ, and it brings the peace that resulted from Christ's victory on the cross. Here's what I want us to focus on for today, though. I want us to focus on what Jesus said to his followers about how they should respond to the resurrection. He first 
directs Mary on how she should respond to the resurrection. This woman who had been forgiven much, who loved the Lord so much, came early on Sunday morning. Uh, There's quite a bit of of agreement that she probably came around 3 a.m. to Jesus' tomb. She found the tomb empty. She went and she told Peter and John. They came, they saw the empty tomb, and then they returned to their homes and locked the doors. But Mary lingered at the tomb. She stood outside the tomb crying because at this point she was not anticipating resurrection. She was afraid the authorities had taken the body of Jesus, perhaps to further mistreat him even in death. And Jesus reveals himself to her in verses 15 and 16. And then he says to her in verse 17, do not hold on to me for I have not yet returned to the father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Now Mary, in seeing Jesus alive, is likely thinking that the resurrection of Jesus means that Jesus is going to resume his normal, previous relations with his disciples. In telling her not to cling to him, Jesus is saying, that his return in the manner that she sees him presently is not permanent. His permanent return in presence will come in another form. She can't cling to him as she finds him in the garden because things are about to change. Jesus' correction to Mary is a spiritual redirection away from his physical presence toward preparation for receiving the spirit that is about to be given. And within these words of Jesus in verse 17, we see how Jesus wants Mary to respond to his resurrection. He doesn't want her to cling to him, but he does want her to do something. He wants her to go to my brothers and tell them. The response Jesus wanted from Mary is to go and tell And then he appears to his disciples, huddled behind the locked door. And he tells them, after speaking peace to them, how they are to respond to the resurrection. And here's what he tells them. Verse 21, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And if you know the history from there, you know that what happened is that the disciples of Jesus went all over the Roman Empire announcing, declaring that the tomb was empty, that Christ had risen. They went around declaring that the one who had died on the cross had risen from the grave, that he was alive, and that he was Lord. The charge to Mary and the charge to those disciples are essentially one and the same. The response that Jesus wants his followers to have to his resurrection is to go and tell. He sent them and he sends us to go and tell that he is risen and he is alive today. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus isn't something that is to be kept to ourselves. It isn't something that is meant to be kept quiet It is something that is meant to be announced, to be proclaimed, to be told. It is to be shared. 
And then in verse 22, we find that with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is one of the more debated verses in the Bible, as well as verse 23, which we'll consider here in a minute. I always like to get the hardest uh, verses to work with on Easter, and so that's what I chose to do today. It's debated because Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Spirit, but we know from the book of Acts that the followers of Christ were told to go and wait in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. So there's enough debate on this verse that I I may not be able to get through this without crossing some of what uh, a few of you believe, and then some of you who are visiting with us might wonder why there's much debate, why we even care that much about this, but I'm going to try to do this pretty balanced. Some have argued that what happens here in John when Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit is merely symbolic, that they didn't actually receive the Holy Spirit, but that they were pointed toward the coming of the Holy Spirit. So it would be sort of like Jesus saying, when the Spirit comes, be open to receiving him. Others have said that they partially received the Spirit, that they received some measure of the Spirit, but they didn't fully receive the Spirit until the day of Pentecost. And then others say that they actually received the Spirit, that they, uh, that, that they would be empowered by the Spirit again in a different way at Pentecost doesn't eliminate the possibility that they were actually filled with the Spirit here in John. My own view tends, and I share with you that I, I can be a fence-sitter on a lot of these debatable questions, but my own view tends toward this, that if Jesus himself breathes on you and says, receive the Holy Spirit, I'm fairly certain you probably received the Spirit. That, that, that's what I tend to think. Now, I think what happened on Pentecost was a subsequent and somewhat different filling of the Spirit, and some have made a distinction between receiving the Spirit and being filled with the Spirit, and I think there's some validity to that thought. But here's what I think we are to take from all of this for today. Jesus has told them to go and tell about his resurrection, and then he gives them the Holy Spirit, not only to be a personal comfort to them, though the Holy Spirit is to be that, but to empower their going and their telling. Friends, we do not proclaim the message of the risen Savior in our own strength and power. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have received him as your Savior and Lord, you have been given his Spirit to empower your going and telling. Are you taking advantage of that power that you've been given, and are you going and telling? We need to be. If you've never had a day of Pentecost infilling of the Spirit, I'd say you ought to experience that type of infilling of the Spirit. But the main point that I want you to take today is that what God tells us to go and do, God empowers us to go and do. He empowers us to go and tell the message. We are sent by Jesus, instructed from the mouth of Jesus himself to go and tell, to announce his resurrection to the world. That's how Jesus instructs his followers here. That's how we're to respond to the resurrection. And then verse 23 gives us some specific insight into the message we're instructed and empowered to proclaim to the world. Here's what verse 23 says. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. 
If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Well, that sounds like a lot of of power, doesn't it? I'm not sure I want any of you having that power. You probably don't want me having that power. Uh, This, again, is one of the most debated verses in Scripture. At first reading, it does sound like Jesus is giving his followers the power to forgive sins and worse, the power to not forgive sins. And yet we know this can't be an accurate understanding of it because the Bible is very clear in Luke 5.21 that only God can forgive sins. Uh, It's not up to you to forgive my sins or me to forgive yours. Only God can do that. So, so if this doesn't mean the power to forgive sins, what does it mean? Some say that this authority given to the followers of Jesus is simply connected with proclaiming the gospel, announcing the terms upon which sins would be forgiven, and also announcing that absent acceptance of the gospel, that sins cannot be forgiven but are retained. In this view, the authority that Jesus gives here is essentially the authority to proclaim the gospel message. Clearly telling people that their sins can be forgiven, warning them that without accepting Christ, their sins cannot be forgiven. And then another view, which includes that one, but goes a little further, uh, is that what Jesus did here is give his disciples not the power to forgive sins, but the right, the authority to declare sins forgiven. The way this would work is that disciples then and disciples now would go and announce the resurrection of Jesus. They would share the good news of his life, death, and resurrection. They would share that salvation can be found by turning to Christ in faith. People would hear this message. Some of them would respond in faith. Some of them would receive Jesus. And what these folks say, and what I agree with, is that the disciples are authorized to tell such people, to assure such people that their sins are forgiven. Others, however, reject the message of the gospel. They refuse to turn to Christ in faith. The disciples are authorized to tell them that they are still in their sins and that if they die apart from faith in Jesus, they will perish eternally. The authority is not to forgive or retain sins, but to declare sins forgiven or retained based on how a person responds to Christ. And so here's what I think Jesus is authorizing his followers then and now to do. We are to proclaim the resurrection. We are to proclaim the gospel. We are to share with the world that salvation can only be found by turning to Christ in faith. Part of that proclamation is assuring people that when they place their faith in Jesus, their sins the, the, the guilt that comes with, with the selfish way that all of us live, their past rebellion against God, it's forgiven because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And then part of this proclamation includes a clear articulation that forgiveness of sins can only be found through faith in Christ. And, and that to reject Christ leaves someone in their sins. Their sins are not forgiven, but are retained because of their rejection of God's offer of this great salvation that's available through Christ. 
Then when someone actually responds in faith to that message, there is evidence of repentance, true acceptance of Christ as Savior. We are then authorized to speak on behalf of God and declare to this person a word of release from the guilt of their sin. What God, uh, what Christ essentially does here is gives us the authority to verbally assure a person that the curse of sin is broken in their life, their guilt is removed, they have been forgiven, they are free, they are saved. Essentially, we have the authority to affirm what God has already done in a person's life, to assure a sinner saved by grace that they are in fact forgiven. Do you realize what a wonderful privilege that is? And do you realize what an incredible service that can be to another human being who comes to Christ in faith, but the enemy of their soul continues to try to place them under condemnation, to have someone who loves them and cares for them come alongside and say, no, you have received Christ. You are forgiven. We become the mouth of Jesus for that person and speak life-giving, freeing words to them. It's a great privilege. But contrary to the touchy-feely, never-say-anything-difficult attitude that has invaded much of the church today, Jesus also gives the authority for his disciples to speak words of warning to those who reject this salvation that he offers. He gives us the authority to warn of sins retained when Christ is rejected. Friends, these words of Jesus weren't just for the disciples then and there. They are for us here and now. We are to respond to the resurrection just as they were. We are to go and tell. To announce the resurrection of Jesus. To share the good news of his life, death, and resurrection. To proclaim the gospel. To proclaim that forgiveness of sins is available through faith in Christ. We are absolutely to speak words of life to people who turn to Christ in faith. We are to assure them of the reality of what has happened by declaring their sins forgiven in response to evidence of genuine faith. And we're also called to be faithful to the gospel in this way. We are called to always affirm that salvation is found only in Christ. No matter how much the pressure builds to compromise that message, we are called to affirm it. We are called to affirm that Jesus didn't die and rise again just because any old way would do. Salvation is found only in Christ. And when those who hear the message reject it, we are called not to compromise the message, but to lovingly, but faithfully declare that apart from Christ, there is no forgiveness of sins. Friends, this is not hateful. This is not self-righteous. This is being faithful to the gospel. It is being respectful of Christ's sacrifice. It is being faithful to Jesus. It is being faithful to the post-resurrection instructions that Jesus gives his followers here in John 20. And beyond all of that, 
Friends, it is the loving thing to do. No matter how many people tell you, tell me otherwise, it is the loving thing to do. Because there is no more hateful thing that you can do to another human being than assure them that they are okay with God when they are not. You have to hate someone to do that to them. Jesus lived, he died, and he rose again. Because that is the only way that men and women born in sin, who have all also gleefully participated in sin, we weren't just born that way. We all go running to sin at the earliest moment we can do so. That is the only way that men and women born in sin, all willing participants in sin, could be, can be reconciled to God. May we always lovingly but faithfully proclaim this message. Here is a clear implication of verse 23. There are only two kinds of people in this world. Those whose sins have been forgiven and those whose sins have not been forgiven. There's another way that we can state this same reality. There are two kinds of people in the world. Those whose sins have been forgiven and those whose sins can be forgiven. If you're here today and you've never turned to Christ in faith, you've never come to a place of admitting you're a sinner in need of a Savior, you've never embraced Jesus as that Savior, you've never asked Him to be your Savior, the truth is that you are here this morning, and I, and I say this with all concern and love for you, you are here this morning bearing the guilt of your sin. If you've not come to Christ in faith, your sins have not been forgiven. But equally true is this, your sins can be forgiven. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter the depth of sin that you've gone to. It doesn't matter how bad you feel about yourself today. It doesn't matter what a guilty conscience you have. It doesn't matter how long you have rejected Christ's offer of salvation. If you decide today to turn to him in faith, your sins can be forgiven. And it's because of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that we celebrate today. That's why your sins can be forgiven. Romans 6.23 is just a fascinating verse. It starts with devastatingly bad news, but then the second part of it gives the best news in the world. It says that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Apostle Paul, writing at another spot in Romans, tells us that if we will simply confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, and if we will believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, that we will be, you will be, saved. If you've not done that, you can do that today. And I hope that on this Easter 2015, you'll consider Jesus who died for your sins and raised to life again because your debt has been paid. I pray that you'll consider him. I pray that you'll embrace the truth about him 
And I pray that you'll embrace the truth about yourself because here's the fact, you have to embrace the truth about yourself before you'll ever embrace the truth about him. So I hope you embrace the truth about yourself, that you embrace the truth about Jesus, that you'll turn to Christ in faith today and you'll receive him as your savior and Lord. Why don't you stand?